Amen. I like that this morning. Just a little bit of a string flavor in our worship. Yeah, yeah appreciate that. You know, um, this past Thursday night, Anita and I went with Mike and Diane Bridger over to the university. And speaking of strings, we were able to see the Vienna Light Orchestra. And I'm going to tell you, that was one of the most amazing uh, things that I had seen in a long, long time. Uh, just There was roughly 12 or so instruments, all stringed instruments, cellos, Fiddles, but they're not fiddles, they the violins, violins. Uh, the difference between a fiddle and a violin is the one playing it. Um, but a harp, it was just a wonderful, wonderful uh, event. And so I'm just so thankful hearing all those Christmas hymns, just classics, um, many of which were just very, very worshipful. And so I do love this time of year. Let me just also emphasize what Jonathan mentioned about this Wednesday night. I really want to encourage you to be here if it's at all possible. You say, you know, I don't have anyone in the student ministry. That's okay. You need to come and support our students. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time of worship. We're going to have just a time of fellowship. There'll be some refreshments and some hot chocolate out in the lobbies. And so it'll be a wonderful time. And so you be sure to be here at 6 o'clock. And I don't know any, anything that would bless my heart any more <clears throat> than to just see this entire lower section here absolutely packed this Wednesday night as our students uh, lead us in worship. And so um, I know that they've been praying, and, and it would mean so much to them uh, for their church family to be here to support them. And so if you've not had a chance uh, on Wednesday nights, you know, to ever poke your head into the student ministry, just some remarkable things that are happening up there. And uh, I'm so thankful for Blythe and his leadership and all who work with our students. And so um, praise the Lord for that. Well, I want you to take your Bible this morning. And in just a moment, I'll announce the passage that I want you to turn to. <clears throat> but I want to kind of set it up first. Uh, because I'm going to preach an unconventional Christmas sermon. Uh, you've probably noticed the number of movies that we, we like to watch this time of year. Those Christmas movies most of them feature a storyline where almost everyone is excited about Christmas except that one guy who tries to sabotage everyone else's joy. Have you noticed any of those movies that seem to have that character? You know, you've got the, the cranks. You know, they, everybody in their neighborhood decks out their, 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 their yard, their house with lights, but the cranks, they decide they're going to skip Christmas, and so they just sort of, you know... Uh, pour cold water on everybody else's joy. Uh, Dickens, of course, has introduced us to Ebenezer Scrooge, who is pinching his pennies and looking down on those fools who freely give what they have to others. And then, of course, there's the immortal character given to us by Dr. Seuss himself, the Grinch. Uh, who can forget these lines? Uh, the Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be that his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. But I think the most likely reason of all 
may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. You know the rest of the story. The Grinch hatches this plan to try to steal Christmas or to keep Christmas from coming. When that doesn't work, he decides he's going to steal all of the presents from the Who's down in Whoville. Now, the fact of the matter is, every story has its main character, often its hero. Uh, There's the supporting cast, but every story also has its villain. And the good things about the movies that we love this time of year is usually the antagonist sort of comes around by the time that it's all said and done. And before it's over, there's been a complete change of heart. Now, that's not the case as it relates to the villain in the true Christmas story because not everyone is, is as excited about the news of a Savior as you and I are. And we read in Scripture that there is an evil personality who has attempted to prevent Christ's coming from the moment his coming was initially announced in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And so for that reason, I want you to take your Bible and turn to this unconventional passage for an unconventional Christmas sermon, Revelation chapter 12. We're looking at the characters of the Christmas story. And a couple of weeks ago, we began with the prophet And I showed you how Christmas is really the fulfillment of prophecy. And there's a phrase in particular that Matthew uses many times throughout his gospel. Uh, It was in fulfillment of the prophet. And so Christmas uh, was in fulfillment of the prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14. We looked at the prophet as the first character of the Christmas story. And then last week, we considered the woman. And we looked at Christmas from the perspective of Mary and uh, how she responded to the initial announcement from Gabriel that she would uh, be the mother of the Messiah, that she was an instrument that God had chosen. And we considered her song of worship there, uh, and we looked at that wonderful passage in Luke chapter 1. And so this third character that I want to introduce you two this morning. You perhaps have never considered this character as being a part of the Christmas story, but he's there in the shadows. Whether you recognize him being there at the nativity or not, he's there in the shadows, and the character that I'm referring to is the dragon. The dragon. Uh, Referring to this passage of Scripture, um, Eugene Peterson has said this, this is not the nativity story that you grew up with, But it is the nativity story all the same. And what he means by that is in Revelation 12, you won't find the mention of a baby in a manger. Uh, There is no angelic announcement being made to shepherds on a Judean hillside. Uh, There's no visit from the Magi from afar, as we read about in Matthew's account of the Christmas story. Uh, You do find angels in this passage of Scripture, but these angels are not singing. They're fighting. (laughs) They're engaged in a conflict. And I like what Danny Aiken says of this passage of Scripture, that this is an apocalyptic Christmas story. An apocalyptic Christmas story from the pen of the Apostle John in this last book of the Bible known as the Revelation. And so in this Christmas story, you're going to find a beautifully adorned woman who is to give birth to a male child who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
But there's also this great red dragon that's being described in this passage who is poised to devour the child who's destined to rule the nations. And so the dragon then in the Christmas story is the ultimate villain, uh, the one who has tried to keep Christmas from coming. But aren't you grateful that the dragon couldn't keep Christmas from coming? But it's an unsuccessful attempt on his part to try to prevent the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, I want to read beginning in verse number 1. Now, bear in mind the fact that this is highly symbolic language. And what's being described in this passage, uh, it's, it's a, a symbolism that points to a greater reality. And, and that's true with so much of the book of Revelation. And so it's not my intention this morning to want to press the details of this particular vision too much. But what I want you to understand with me is sort of the big picture view uh, is that the understanding that there is an evil personality who hates Christmas simply because of what Christmas is ultimately all about. Because it's the incarnation of the Son of God. It's the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the entrance of the Son of God into our world that Satan has tried to thwart and prevent from happening. And you see him launching his attempt to try to stamp out the promised seed all throughout the Old Testament. You see his evil activity even in the shadows as he's the one perhaps behind Herod and Herod's intention to murder all of the male children in Bethlehem upon hearing that Messiah has been born. And so the dragon, he's the sinister personality of the Christmas story. So verse number one, the Bible says, And the great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And so you could just imagine what this would look like. Just use your imagination here. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, which roughly equates to three and a half years. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And again, that's another expression that corresponds with that 1260 days or three and a half year time period. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, the dragon, he's the third character of this Christmas story uh, that I want us to consider for our time together this morning. Now, when I was growing up, <clears throat> I had two younger sisters. And oftentimes in the summer when we were outside, <clears throat> we would like to lay on our backs and come up with imaginary shapes that we would see in the clouds. Did any of you ever do that maybe when you were younger? And, and, and even to this day, I can still remember just some of the imaginary shapes that we would, we would be able to see uh, with our imagination as we were looking at the shapes of the clouds. Our minds are highly imaginative. I mean, even today, we adults still do the same thing. Uh, Shakespeare alluded to this in his play about Mark Antony and Cleopatra in which there's a line where Antony says, sometimes we see a cloud that's dragonish. That is, sometimes we see a, a cloud in the sky that has the shape of a dragon. There's a monster at times in the clouds. And so though it's imaginary, there's an element of truth there when you consider the storyline of the Bible. Uh, Danny Aiken has said of this passage that it tells us in part, in summary fashion, the great redemptive story of the Bible. What we find here in Revelation 12 is something of a panoramic view of salvation history because it tells us with just vivid imagery and vision the true story of the whole world so that it looks to the past it addresses what's going on in the present, and ultimately it's pointing us to the future. And it's important that we keep this in mind because with the unspeakable atrocities that daily flood our news feed, and we frequently hear about in the news, at times we wonder if God is really on the throne. Is he really in control of the events that are going on here on planet Earth? And yet it's the storyline of the Bible that tells us this good news that when Jesus died and rose again, he declared the ultimate and complete victory over sin, evil, and death. So that even though the battle has been won, we still live in a world where the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness remain in conflict. So there's a conflict in kingdoms. And you and I, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we sort of sense that as pilgrims here in this world, in this life, we recognize the fact that there is indeed turmoil. And it goes back to what we looked at from Ephesians chapter 6 for those many long weeks when we looked at the armor of God. The apostle Paul tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
And so we see and experience the effects of this kind of conflict every day in our lives. And when it comes to understanding uh, why things in our world are the way that they are, without the intervening grace of God, we would totally be in the dark. We wouldn't know what was going on. We would have no way of being able to process our own life and our own existence, incapable of discerning our own problem, which is why we need the light of God's revelation. Because God speaks light into our situation and tells us that there's a whole lot more going on in our world than simply meets the eye. Because the world, as it stands now, is under the influence of a dragon. Revelation 12 tells us that there's a dragonish cloud that looms over human history. And you might think of this cloud as a dark thundercloud. One that threatens war and conflict on a scale beyond our own ability to even consider. But it's not merely an earthly conflict. This is not a conflict among peers. This is not a conflict among nations for that matter. It's not simply a war on earth with army against army. But what's being described here in Revelation 12 through highly symbolic language is a war in the heavenlies. It's dragon versus angel. Kingdom of darkness, waging war on a kingdom of light. And yet, shining its light against the shadow of these ominous events, we see a symbol of hope. And you, you want to know what that symbol of hope is? It's a woman and her newborn child. And so you keep that in mind this Christmas when you see those events which would absolutely break your heart, discourage your soul, depress you in mind and spirit. There is a symbol of hope, and that symbol of hope is a woman and her child. And that child is destined to rule the nations with the rod of iron, men and women. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want us to look at these symbolic images this morning and then make some application for our own personal lives. The first thing I want you to notice with me is the context. There's a context here that really needs to be considered. I mean, really, before you get into chapter 12 itself, keep in mind where this chapter sort of fits in as far as the greater story that's being told in the book of Revelation. Revelation is apocalyptic in nature, which means that much of what we find here is descriptive symbolism. And so the first thing we need to do is really establish the context of these events that are being described here in this chapter. Because what you find in chapter 12 is yet another instance where the scene zooms out to sort of give a big picture before it zooms back in on a specific event in time. And if you hold to the futurist interpretation of Revelation, as I do, then you'll recognize that there are various chapters throughout Revelation that deal with, uh, they're known as interludes, where there's sort of a break from the action, uh, and, and you're given sort of this big picture understanding of what's going on. That's what John is doing here in this chapter. And so the context to be considered. Uh, to begin with, notice that John's vision involves a sign. A sign. Uh, He tells us in verse number 1 that a great sign appeared in heaven. In fact, he uses that word sign twice because he says the same thing down in verse number 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. So contextually then, this involves a sign. To borrow from the world of theater, what we're dealing with here is sort of a new scene. 
The scene changes. And here John is told there's a great sign that appears in heaven that he sees. And this sign points to a great reality. In fact, the word that he uses there, sign, it translates a word that describes a mark or a symbol that has a special meaning that points us to something beyond the symbol itself. So that in our minds, we're very imaginative, and he u- he's using this symbolic language to describe this woman uh, who is about to give birth. Uh, her child is a special child who's to rule the nations, but poised to devour the child as the child is born is this great red dragon. And so this is a sign according to what John is saying. By the way, this is the same word that uh, Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 when the disciples ask a question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And so what John is just simply saying here, uh, this vision involves symbolic characters that point to very real people and events in history, both in the past as well as in the future. And so this is a sign, a symbol, pointing to a much greater reality. And not only does it involve a sign, but notice something else, that this involves a story that's being told. It'll absolutely change the way that you read and study the Bible when you see the Bible as being one story, folks as opposed to just random stories that are, that, are, that are not connected. I think a lot of people, they approach the Bible like that. They think, well, the Bible is just uh, a lot of you know, 66 books written over a period of roughly 1,500 years, 40 different human authors. Uh, they had different backgrounds. You had some who were shepherds and some who were kings and some who were nomads and that kind of thing. But what you have in the scripture is the revelation of God. God has given us a story, a true story. Uh, And and it's an understanding of the story by which we're able to process our own existence in the world. And so keep in mind that this is a story here that's being told. This is not the first time that we're introduced to a dragon or a serpent who is in opposition to a woman that's to bear a child. Again, remember, this is the very first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God pronounces a curse upon the serpent, God says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And it's out of that initial promise that the entire storyline of the Bible is found. It explains every major conflict that you read about in the pages of the Old Testament, where you see such animosity being leveled against Israel, for example. Why is it that Israel has been so hated, so maligned, so viciously persecuted? The reason being, there is a dragon There is a dark, evil personality, and that dragon, of course, is Satan himself who opposes the people of God and wants to prevent Messiah from coming into the world because it will be the entrance of Messiah into our world that will spell the doom of the dragon. And so he's going to do everything that he can to try to keep that from taking place. And so there's a story here. There's a sign here, and John wants us to understand that. Now again, if if you you understand the context, if you go back up to chapter 11, immediately preceding this sign that John has given, 
uh, if you read what is written, for example, in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's the theme of the book of Revelation. It's the victory of God over the enemy. It is the ultimate victory of God in ushering in the kingdom and giving the kingdom to his one and only son. And someone says, well, what is the world around us coming to? How, how bad are things going to get? What's really going to happen? Listen, the world is coming to Jesus Christ. And the moment you and I really begin to understand that, the greater confidence and clarity that we'll live with. The world is destined to have an appointment with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. That's going to happen. And, and Revelation tells us how that's going to happen. And so don't miss the big picture then of what the seventh trumpet judgment really is announcing. And I don't have time to get into all of the various judgments and the way that the chronology of Revelation is laid out. Suffice it to say that this seventh trumpet judgment is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of Christ. The very thing that Israel's prophets foretold uh, would happen. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so it's emphasizing then the great transfer of power from sinful humanity that's in bondage to Satan to that of Jesus Christ and his righteous saints under the sovereign authority of God the Father. And in order for this change to take place, the kingdom of darkness has got to be confronted, and it's got to be judged, and then the kingdom of light will cast its brilliance upon the face of the earth. And folks, that's what the incarnation is all about. That's ultimately what Christmas is all about. It's so much more than a baby being born in a manger. It's all about the identity of that baby. It's all about the destiny of that child. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so what John is describing here really is the fulfillment and the answer of the Lord's prayer. What is it that we pray when we pray the model prayer? Jesus taught us to pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you can rest assured that prayer is indeed going to be answered. And so that's the context then of this 12th chapter of Revelation. Now notice secondly with me, there are some characters here in this vision that need to be identified. And who are these characters to be identified? Well, if you look at just the first six verses, uh, there are three of these characters who are mentioned. Uh, John describes what he sees, this great sign that appears in heaven, and, and he describes a woman who's, there's a threefold description. She's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. On her head, she's wearing a crown of 12 stars. And a significant thing about this woman is that she is pregnant. And she's in agony, crying out in birth pains, experiencing travail, the agony of giving birth. And then there's another character that's mentioned, and that's the great red dragon who is under description, uh, said to have seven heads and ten horns. And you kind of think of like that, that hydra, 
you know, from Greek mythology, sort of that kind of picture perhaps in your mind, a seven-headed dragon. And someone says, well, what in all is that about? Well, it corresponds with visions from the book of Daniel. And, and the heads and the horns, I don't have time to get into all of this, but it basically refers to worldly kingdoms and powers that are under the control of the dragon. How is it that Satan exercises his usurped dominion in our world? Well, he does so through the fallen empires of sinful humanity. And so the point being made here, the dragon is standing before the woman about to give birth because he wants to devour her child the moment that she gives birth. He wants to prevent the birth from happening. He wants to prevent the child from coming. Because again, he knows that the child, when the child is born, it will spell doom for his usurped dominion. And so let's just work through these then. Let's identify the woman, first of all. Who is the woman that's described here with this interesting description, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet? On her head, there's a crown of stars. And if this is a sign that points to a bigger reality or bigger picture, then who is this mysterious being referring to? Now, you know that there are a lot of ideas that have been offered. Catholicism has come along and said, well, this is a description of Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus. Others have tried to identify this woman with the church. And yeah, I believe that both of those explanations fall short. Because I believe the way that this woman is described tells us who she is and what she represents. And there's a clue in Genesis chapter 37. You remember the dreams that Joseph had? And his brothers became envious of Joseph because of the dreams that he had? Well, there's one particular dream where he tells his brothers that that he has a dream in which the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And so when he tells that to his, his father Jacob, to his brothers, his father rebukes him and says, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow on the ground before you? And so Jacob understood that dream to be referenced to the entire clan of Israel. And so I believe, based upon that description, that the woman here in Revelation 12 is none other than Israel. The descendants of Jacob. And so John is describing a picture of the nation of Israel, which will again come to prominence in the last days. And it's interesting, John sees that this woman is pregnant, crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And largely, that's the storyline of the Old Testament. Because it is Israel that God has chosen through whom to bring blessing to the entire world. That's the promise that he made to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world through your descendant. It's going to be through Abraham, and later it's going to be through the tribe of Judah, and specifically the family of King David, that Messiah is going to be born. And there's so much tension, and there's so much conflict in the Old Testament where, where the enemy has tried to prevent that from happening. And so if the woman is Israel, then secondly, let's identify the dragon that's being described here. Who is the dragon? Well, that's a little bit easier, isn't it? Because down in verse 9, we're told exactly who the dragon is. The dragon is Satan. 
Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so the idea that with his tail he swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth, this perhaps is reference to those fallen angels that were in league with Satan when he rebelled against God. And the point is, the dragon is the villain in the story, the ancient enemy of God's people. The one who was there in the garden way back in Genesis chapter 3, deceiving our first parents. And so this dragon is poised in such a way that it's standing before the woman who's about to give birth so that it might devour her child. And so then the third character, who is the child that the dragon hates? Well, let's identify the child. If the child is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron, you know that there's only one who's destined to rule the nations. You know who he is? You'll be glad to know him. His name is Jesus. Yes, Jesus is destined to rule the nations. This is what David writes about prophetically in Psalm 2. It's what Isaiah is referring to in chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. He's going to be the one who's going to usher in the kingdom. And so no wonder then the dragon hates the child. Because the child is destined to rule the kingdom that the dragon has tried to usurp for himself. Now listen to this. I love what Philip Yancey says about this. He says, from God's viewpoint and Satan's viewpoint, Christmas signals far more than the birth of a baby. It was nothing short of an invasion. The decisive advance in the great struggle for the cosmos. And so keep that in mind when in your mind you visit the nativity scene in Bethlehem. And when you see the imagery and you sing Silent Night, think about this. From heaven's vantage point, there's a war being waged in the heavenlies trying to prevent this birth from happening in the first place because the dragon sees the birth of the Son of God, the incarnation of God, as a, an invasion into territory that he's usurped for himself. And so why in the world... Should it be a shock to you that there has been such animosity all throughout history that's been instigated by the dragon to try to prevent the birth of this male child? It was Satan who moved Cain to kill Abel, according to 1 John 3.12. He moved Pharaoh to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys in the Nile. Or, or he moved Saul to make an attempt on the life of David so many times. Uh, he moved Athaliah, who's a wicked usurper there, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 22. She destroys all of the royal heirs of the house of Judah. And there's only one left, a young boy by the name of Joash, who's hidden in the temple. And things get down to one person. That's how desperate the situation was. But you see, God's honoring his promise. God's protecting Joash and so protecting the messianic lineage. Who is it but the dragon that moves upon the heart of that wicked man Haman to plot genocide against the Jews? Who is it but the dragon that instigates wicked King Herod uh, to murder all of the baby boys to and under in Bethlehem upon hearing word from the Magi that a king has been born? 
And who is it but the dragon who's still instigating so much anti-Semitism in our own day? And so much hatred and so much animosity toward the nation of Israel in our own time. Now listen, you look at the nation of Israel now on a map, it's no larger than the state of New Jersey. But why is it that Israel seems to just constantly be in the news and the headlines? And why is there so much animosity leveled against it? I'll tell you why. Because the dragon hates the woman. And so here it is. Prior to Christmas, let me tell you something. Satan was trying to keep Christ from the world. Since Christmas, Satan is trying to keep the world from Christ. And you know, if we're not careful, we can fall prey to his own schemes in our own lives, can't we? We can fuss, we can argue, we can be distracted with materialism. We can live with a sense of a grudge or nurse a wound in our heart. We can harbor some resentment in our heart toward another person. And somewhere behind the scenes, in the shadows, there's a dragon who's whispering in our ear. Let me tell you, he wants to wreck your Christmas The dragon wants to ruin your life. But I've got good news for you. He is a defeated enemy. He didn't keep Christ from being born. He can't keep Christ from ruling and reigning. And he won't keep Christ from coming a second time. Amen, Amen. preacher. Amen. Well, one third thing that I want to mention, and I'm done. The conflict to be understood. I don't have time to get into all of this, but the conflict that's mentioned there from verse 7 through the close of chapter 12 There's a heavenly conflict that's under description, I believe much of which is future. That refers to a specific conflict that's going to happen in the tribulation period. But the point being made, uh, the one tool that Satan has in his arsenal that he uses against me and you over and over again is that tool known as accusation. Where he constantly is accusing the saints before the throne of God day and night. You see this in Job, don't you? Even now we understand that Satan has some type of limited access to God's heavenly courtroom. And he's the accuser, like a prosecuting attorney. He's constantly digging up dirt and constantly accusing us. Accusing us before God, accusing us in terms of our own minds uh, and, and, and that sort of thing. But notice that the scripture says that there's coming a time when the accuser of our brethren is going to be thrown down to the earth. And all of his angels are going to be thrown down with him. And he's going to be given a very short leash. And he he recognizes that his time is short. And so he's going to persecute the woman. Again, I believe this will be a time of great tribulation for Israel that's being described here in the last days. But the point of this passage... uh, God's people are victorious over the dragon because they stand in the victory that the child himself has secured. How is it that I'm victorious over this sinister, dark, wicked dragon? Not in my own strength. Not in my own ability. Not in my own smarts or that type of thing. I only am victorious in as much as I stand in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ for me, whose wounds plead for me, so that when the enemy of my soul accuses me, I have an advocate in heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ, and his wounds plead for me. 
And so this is why uh, the scripture says that uh, God's people have conquered him. That word conquered there in verse 11 means overcome. It's used 15 times in Revelation. They've overcome him. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto the death. And so here it is, the dragon. He is a defeated foe. But it's the child who's ruling and reigning who spells the dragon's defeat, who defeats the enemy of our soul. And so there is some great application here for you and for me, especially as we wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual hosts of wickedness in our own lives. I'm going to give these to you, then I'm through, just by way of just some closing application. The first thing you and I should do when we experience temptation, we sense that we're under attack, or the influence of the dragon in our life, listen, you and I need to seek refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ. Seek refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you ever experienced the accusation of the, the devil in your own conscience and emotions? I know I sure have. How do you handle that? Well, John says of believers who experience the accusation of the enemy, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's true for them. That's true for, for, for me. It's true for all of us. And so where is victory found? But in the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses me of all of my sin. The debt has been paid. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His wounds plead for me. And that's why the dragon tried to prevent the child from being born. Because the great promise of old was that the child would crush the head of the serpent, even though it meant his own heel would be bruised, which means he himself will be experiencing suffering in the process, and that's the cross. And so you need to seek refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, to be victorious over the enemy, you need to share your personal testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You know, all around us this Christmas, the places where we work, the places where we live, schools, our family dynamic, there are people who are struggling under the heavy burden of sin and bondage and guilt. And they're under the spell of a dragon, living their life under delusion and lies from the enemy. And so... You need to share your personal testimony of how you came to faith in Jesus. Tell people what he's done for you. You've got a story to tell if you know Christ is your Savior. And let me tell you, the world needs to hear your story. And then number three, to experience victory over the enemy, you need to surrender everything on the altar of obedience. John says the devil was overcome because the saints did not love their lives unto death. They didn't shrink back from the threat of death. They didn't live their life under the fear of a dragon. You don't have to live your life under the fear of a dragon. You know that. You don't. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so seek refuge in the blood of Jesus. Share your own story of salvation with those around you and surrender everything in your life on the altar of obedience.
And you can live in the victory that the child has secured through his own death and resurrection and his ascension. And let me tell you, folks, Satan couldn't prevent Christmas from coming, and he's not going to prevent the second coming of Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus is our prayer. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? I love the hymn that Charles Wesley left us, 1744, something like that. But he wrote these words, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, we're so thankful for the victory that has been won through the child that was born to Mary all those many, many centuries ago. And Lord, how it was fulfillment of promise and hope. And even though, Lord God, there's been a dragon that's tried to prevent it from happening, he is a defeated foe. And Christmas spells his defeat because the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And yet he suffered and died on a cross in our place as our substitute. And he's been raised from death, the grave. He's exalted and he's ascended and he's at the right hand of the Father and he's ruling and reigning and he's coming again very, very soon, I believe. And when he comes, he's going to establish his rule and reign upon the earth. And he will rule all of the nations. God, you've given us a mission and a message to proclaim. And Lord, that's what Christmas is a reminder of, Lord. It ought to be an impetus for us and a motivating factor for us, Lord, to want to share our testimony. To not seek refuge in our own good deeds or our own righteous merit. We have none. But to seek refuge in the blood of Jesus alone and to surrender our lives on an altar of obedience to you. Come thou long-expected Jesus is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.